There we go. Good morning. This is the Reading Instruction Show, and I have a very, very special guest in my studio, Susan Vincent. Susan, who are you? Well, I'm happy to be here. Um, it's great to chat with you, Andy. I always love chatting literacy. Um, so my name is Susan Vincent, and I um, am an experienced teacher, i.e. old, but i um, I've been around early literacy for over 30 years. At 30 years, I stopped counting, so I'm not sure how far past that I am. But um, I've been a first grade classroom teacher, a reading specialist, a literacy coach, um, and I currently teach at the university level teaching pre-service teachers. So that's who I am in a nutshell. I'm in Oxford, Ohio at Miami University, which is where I teach. Wow, experience and knowledge. Well, Susan, if you could say anything to the science of reading advocates, what in the heck would you say? Well, I'm glad you asked because I do love talking about this. Um, and I, I, when I teach my pre-service teachers, the first day of class, I always like to give them my background so they know who's teaching them. And I've discovered that as I go through kind of my experience, um, it mirrors a lot of what's happening right now with the if you want to call them reading wars or whatever. So I, if I could kind of go through my history and tell you, because what I, in a nutshell, what I would like to say to teachers in the field, administrators making decisions about curriculum, legislators who are passing laws. I'm in Ohio. We have legislation being passed right now that not only dictates what you do, it dictates what you can't do. And some mm -hmm. of what you can't do is very research-based and successful. So all of that, you know, um, there are things that I would like to say that I think balanced literacy or what, I hate even using terms like that because we all think of different things when we hear terms like that. But I think um, the practices that are commonly associated with balanced literacy have either been misunderstood by the science of reading movement. And I do think there are people that just misunderstand or purposefully misrepresented um, to move the you know, cause forward. And I do think there are people that purposefully misrepresent, maybe journalists perhaps who might misrepresent when they know better. Um, so my message would be, we really need to be clear about what it is we're moving against. And so I'll just tell you my background. I came to Miami University, which is where I teach here in Ohio, in the 1980s. And I was in a whole language program. They said flat out, you know, we're whole language. That's what we do. I learned whole language. And then when I got my first job as a first grade teacher, it was in a whole language district. They said we're whole language. But even then, when it was as whole language as you can get, in my district, we had a phonics program that we taught every day, 20 minutes a day with my first graders. I was doing a phonics program where they learned to hear sounds and words. They learned the letter sounds. They learned to decode. I was doing it even back then. And in my undergraduate program, we read articles that talked about balance. You know, we're not going to throw kids in a pile of books and hope they learn to read. We have to teach them skills as well. So, um, I feel like even back then we were doing a balanced job. So then after I was a first grade teacher, I became a reading recovery teacher. My district had a plan that every first grade and kindergarten teacher in the district would be trained. So I was trained in reading recovery. 
um, in the mid to late 90s and did that for seven years. And then I became a teacher leader, which meant I went around and trained the re recovery teachers. Um, but even then, like I look back and when I was first a reading recovery teacher, I inherited a set of books and they were very patterned. So this is issue number one, the issue of what books do we put in front of emergent readers to read? And the science of reading movement would say, balanced literacy uses patterned books where kids don't have to look at the print. It's just about memorizing, looking at the picture and memorizing the words and then saying it. they don't actually learn to interact with the print. And I think the thing is, I think both sides have valid points and that's how we get on this swing. And I think the valid point was that was happening. I saw it happen. I had the same books with all the patterns that went on way too long. But my point is, and it was around 1998, somewhere in there, all the rain recovery teachers were gathered together and we were told, you can't be using pattern text after, and what they said was after kids have left to right directionality. I would go so far as to say after they have one-to-one -one matching because pattern text is a crutch to help children be able to say, oh, one word out of my mouth. I point to one word on the page. Um, so in 1998, we were told to get rid of the patterned books as soon as they had, you know, that print concept of going left to right. So to me, that's a very false argument. That's one of their main arguments is it's all about memorizing, you know, words or, mm -hmm. and memorizing patterns. So then I go on and um, I became a literacy coach and um I got involved. I don't know. Do you subscribe to Spell Talk by any chance? No, I do not. Or do you know what that is? I do not. Okay. Well, you should subscribe. Um, so I was a reading specialist during the time that the dyslexia movement came about, which I feel like was legitimate. I feel like there were a lot of kids who had learning disabilities who were not taught with the appropriate instruction. I think that was legitimate. Um, and at that time, the special education teachers in our district asked us to join this list serve. And so it's kind of an old fashioned list serve where you get emails. The discussion happens through emails. And it, it's a science of reading movement. Louisa Motes is on it. Um, all the big names are on it, plus thousands and thousands and thousands of special ed teachers, speech therapists, um, Stephen Dykstra, all that crew is on this list serve. And I joined very naively thinking I would interact with these people and we'd have these great conversations. And as soon as I started interacting, I learned very quickly they were not interested in my point of view, but I didn't leave. I stayed on, I've been on probably 10 years now because I learned from them what their point of view is, what, mm -hmm. what their beefs are, what they think has gone wrong. And I think there are kernels of truth that things were happening um, that needed to be addressed, but it just went way too far, way too far. So I suggest, like, I believe in learning from everybody. Yep. Like, let's hear what people have to say. That's how we become better. Um, I, so I would suggest you join. Okay. I, I will look at that. I, I agree with you. It's important to hear what people are thinking. Even if they yell at you, it, yes. it strengthens your own point of view. Anyway, yes. great story. Keep going. This is good. Okay. Um, so I guess my my 
next point would be um, one of the other things balanced literacy is accused of besides the pattern text. So we could have a discussion about what kind of text we put in front of children. But they also, like you see it over and over again, um, three queuing. Mm -hmm. The approach is three queuing. And I just kind of want to set the record straight. I don't like even people who are balanced literacy people and reading recovery professionals now start using the term three queuing. And we never used that term. That was never a thing. It wasn't an approach. Um, but now because of all the media calling it three queuing, now we call it three queuing. And I refuse to call it three queuing because it's not a thing. But the idea was when children read, when anybody reads, they are reading printed language. Yep. It's language. And so inherent in printed language is the print. Also inherent in language is meaning. You know, language is meaningful. That's what it's for. And also inherent are structural things like the way English works. And that's the three things, meaning, visual, which is the print, the phonics, and language structure. Let's let's dig down. That is such an important part. Pre-queuing is not an approach. It's not a strategy. It's a recognition that brain uses interactive systems to recognize words during reading. I'm going to say it again. It is not a method. It's not an approach. It's not a strategy. It's an understanding. Yeah. Good and it's inherent. It's inherent in the reading. You can't take it away. So no. Ohio has passed legislation outlawing yes. three queuing. How do you outlaw what's inherent in printed language? Hey, you kids, don't use all of your brain. Just use the letter sounds. Yes. Yes. It's the law. So that's problematic. Mari Clay, who, you know, they all, she started reading recovery yep. and brought it to the United States. And I trained, so she brought it first to Ohio State University. That's where I got my training in reading recovery. And as a teacher leader, I had gay soup and owl, you know, the whole thing. Um, but again, and I think this was around 2000-ish. I can't remember when her publications changed. And she said flat out, I'm not using the term Q anymore because yep. it's so, people are misunderstanding it and misinterpreting it. We're done with cueing, or they, she didn't even say cueing. We're done with talking about cues. We're going to talk about sources of information. Good. And so from, that's been 23 years now that people in our profession stopped using the term Q, yep. but this movement went back in time and looked at old publications, old things that were written and thought, oh, here's something, here's a good point we can make. And that's how this came about, um, which just drives me crazy. <laughs> well, let's dig down on that. You know, pulling up terms and misusing them, misapplying, even things, you know, Ken Goodman has become a swear word to some people. Yes. He's been accused of a, called it guessing at words. Yes. Why? <laughs> that just drives me crazy too. They pull a little thing and they misunderstand a term and they misuse a term. And Mari Clay and Ken Goodman are, are swear words to some. Yes. And I would posit they actually never read an article by these people. No, no. Um, and so you mentioned the word guessing. 
Yes. And I'd kind of like to talk about that as well, because mm -hmm. when they give the example of guessing, the typical argument that they say or the example is um, those balanced literacy people teach yes. children to look at the first letter yes. and the picture and then guess, because yep. that is a prompt and a strategy that you might teach a kid. But I kind of want to explain it. it. It works in the exact opposite way of what they're thinking it does. It teaches children not to guess. Because when we teach emergent readers, we know that children who don't know anything about print concepts, you know, little kids, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and they open a picture book, they make it up as they should. That's a normal part of well, literacy growth. And we call it, we always called it inventing. They would invent the story, and that's a normal, you know, stage you go through before you learn how to use the print. Yeah. In order to stop that and to teach children that, you know what, we don't just make it up. We have to use the printed symbols. The easiest symbol to use is the first letter in a word. It's the easiest to see because space comes before it. Um, it's the easiest thing to recognize in your mouth, that first part. So in order to stop guessing, the first step could be, you know, you said puppy, but look, look at the first letter. It's a D. Let's think about how it can't be puppy, which you guessed. So that whole guessing thing, I think our purposes were the exact opposite of what they think. And then the other strategy, and I don't, I think this, I don't know if this was a Lucy Calkins or um, maybe it was in classrooms that work. I don't know where it came from, mm -hmm. but it was the cover the word. Do you know yeah. the strategy? Like you might have a, a chart the kids are reading and one of the words you cover with a post-it note and then you just reveal letter yeah. by letter. Yeah. And they're saying you're teaching them to guess. You're having, you're covering the word and then saying, what do you think it is? Again, I've used that strategy and I use it for the guessers because I need to teach them. You can't guess. Let me show you. If you're saying like, if the text is, there is my house and they're saying home, I'll cover it and say, okay, you think it's home. Let's check. Could it start like this? Could there be an O next? Oh, but now look, what would you see if it was home? You'd see an M. Let's look at what it actually is. And now let's talk about, you know, the OU, like it's like an out. So you know what to say there and there's an S. So what could it be? So for me, that cover the word was not about guessing. It was about stopping guessing. And it develops metacognition. Does it make sense? That's yes. the purpose of reading. Yes. And so kind of to get back to that spell group talk, and I think they've evolved too. When I first was getting emails from them, they were against any kind of meaning making until like third grade. Like, no, there can't be any meaning in the text because children's minds might go away from the decoding and that would get in the way of orthographic mapping um, and all that. And I think they've evolved from that. They didn't like any sight words, even though OG, and I'm trained in OG. So I'm not somebody who's not trained in, like I'm trained in OG, I'm trained in foundations because I wanted to learn about everything so I can speak from a point of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, I think they've moved away from that. They didn't want sight words because it got in the way of orthographic mapping. Like if you memorize a word, 
then you haven't orthographically mapped it. And then that's going to mess up your whole system of reading. And so I think they've moved away. How would you define orthographic mapping? To me, it's um, that when you have a lot of experience seeing a printed word and you've matched the sounds coming out of your mouth with the printed symbols in whatever form it is, letter by letter, it could be chunk by chunk, however, um, but you've matched the sounds coming out of your mouth with the print that you're seeing and your brain recognizes that word and knows that word and knows the meaning of it. And you've done that enough that it becomes a sight word, like you just know it, then it's been orthographically mapped. I mean, that's to me, that's what that is. And I don't know that I'm not an expert in orthographic mapping, but is what would you add to that or take well, away? I would just comment, you know, the brain is naturally evolved to recognize patterns. It's a pattern recognition thing. But when we hear the word cat, we don't associate it with short A words. We associate it with cat things, with meaning. That's how our brain organizes words, not by letters, but by concepts. So this idea that as we're reading, our brain is acting like a computer matching letter sounds. No, it's focusing on concepts, on meaning. Anyway, interrupted you. No, no. And I think that's right. And, you know, I always wonder back when they were saying there should be no sight words and you shouldn't expose kids to any words that they can't decode. That's how the book should work. I always wondered what they thought about children who know their own name. They come to school and that's a sight word and most of them are not, you know, phonically regular. Um, how do they explain that? Or and, do they argue like, oh, you shouldn't teach your child their name because it... Dolce, Zeno, Fry, these most frequent words. And there's research to show that if you're not, so these most frequent words freeze up short-term memory to focus on meaning. So you're not sounding out the in of. And you leave kindergarten with 40 to or to 50 of these, you know? And it's just, it's one of those, what I call I thinkisms. I, I think that's right. So it's based on an I thinkism that we shouldn't have sight words. Anyway. I like that. I like yes. that. Sounds like you have gone, lived through the history. Reading First Initiative, you went through that. That was interesting to me because my, you know, for Reading First, it was funding that controlled people. Yes. Yep. Um, and my district was a higher socioeconomic district and we didn't need the funding and we didn't take the funding and we didn't do reading first. So I continued to teach in this very balanced place. Our kids did great. Um, but at that point, I was a teacher leader where I went around to other districts and trained teachers in other districts. So I was in a lot of different places that were reading first. And what I found ended up matching the research that came out in 2008 that it didn't work. But I found that the richer districts, and they tended to be white, um, continued to teach in a balanced way with very engaging little books for children. Um, and they were reaching high levels. The districts that I were in that took reading first 
tended to be lower socioeconomic, tended to have more children of color, tended to be like you would walk in and they were doing worksheets and skills and they had very nice handwriting. I would always say that they did a great job on handwriting, but um, it was very skills oriented and, but it didn't translate into becoming a reader who can comprehend text. So in 2008, when the research came out that it, you know, didn't make a difference that we had done all this in reading first, I have to say I was not surprised at all. But then what was heartbreaking to me was after all that, after that research came out, that's when the dyslexia movement started. And then my district um, followed the dyslexia movement. And at that point, we adopted Dibbles. We adopted, like, we started going that way after it had already been shown. And then teaching changes because assessment drives how teachers are going to instruct because sometimes their paycheck relies on it, their evaluations rely on it. And so when my district started using, we used Ames Web instead of Dibbles, and there was the whole, how many nonsense words can you read in one minute? So then you'd walk in classrooms and there's teachers teaching nonsense words because they need their kids to score high. And you have teachers training kids. When you read, just go as fast as you can. If you don't know a word, just blow by it. Um, if you're not understanding it, don't, don't go back and reread, just keep going because you've got to get a lot of words per minute. So because we adopted that, that skill-based assessment and we valued it so highly, um, teaching changed as well. And I always ask, do we want students to be able to sound out words or to be literate? And to be literate is to use reading and writing for authentic purposes. Yes. You go ahead and you sound out your silly words in isolation. I want my students to be literate. And that speaks to what books we put in their hands. So to me, there are, you know, leveled books mm -hmm. have also been like, they're against the law in Ohio now. Leveled books are against the law. Um, and decodable books are what everyone has to use. But again, those are just labels. Mm -hmm. There are leveled books that have the same level of decodability as some of the decodable books. And so what I just really wish we could get to the point of is having teachers who have enough professional knowledge to choose books that fit the needs of the students in front of them. So yes, they have a chance to practice their decoding skills, but they also from the earliest days have a chance to maintain meaning as they're decoding because it, you know, that's a tricky thing to do two things at once. Yep. Um, and if we have teachers who can look at books, no matter what the label is, and decide this fits my purpose, this, this doesn't, instead of legislating, and then publishers slap labels on, yep. just, you know, it just drives me crazy. <laughs> when the whole language movement came, people were just slapping the whole language movement on stuff to sell product. Yes. And now you see it, you see publishers doing that. You see consultants who are now, I'm gonna teach you phonics and science of reading. You know, a year ago I was balanced literacy, but now I'm this. And I, I understand like that's their living. That's how they have to make a living with laws passed. You won't get hired in Ohio if, if you're not teaching that. So I, I understand people doing this. But I just think that's why it's so important that legislators and decision makers, administrators 
learn the field and not just go by what you know journalists or a movement tell them. Or at least ask the experts. I want to ask you about journalists and maybe Emily Hanford in just a minute, but the educational industrial complex is what I call it, should not exist to make money off our children. They are bloodsuckers feeding off the hopes and dreams of parents, and we have public education to prevent that. So the for-profits have wormed their way in, and it just is not right. I don't... I. People need to make a living, absolutely. But you need to make millions and billions of dollars off our children? That's a rhetorical question, sorry. Well, I agree with you completely. It breaks my heart that it's happening here in Ohio um, where they're mandating programs and outlawing other programs and not allowing teachers yes. to decide what's right for their own students, not allowing teachers to be professionals, Hello. like we allow other professions to be professionals. I think you're absolutely right. I always thought, what if there was a science of plumbing and they mandated certain plumbing? I I had a toilet that backed up once and they're not teaching plumbing the right way. We need to have a science of plumbing. Yes. <laughs> That's an analogy. Yes. All right, speak to Emily Hanford, if you would. Um, and I will right up front tell you I've not listened to her. I I won't. Um, and I know I need to. And I have people say, you know, you have to. She upsets me so much. Yep. Um, and back in the early days when she had first put her stuff out and was becoming a name, and she was on Twitter all the time, and she would interact with you, Um that's, you know, so I've, I've interacted with her through these Twitter conversations um, and I just find her so disingenuous. And I know, for instance, back in the early days, she came to Ohio State to tour reading recovery and sit in on lessons and learn from the people at Ohio State. Um, and I know she seemed like she was going to be balanced and taking it all in and going to, you know, represent what she saw there and then didn't. Yep. Did opposite yeah um, so after that after i knew that that happened i just i think my blood pressure would go too high it wouldn't be good for my health but i i still say i think i need to um because she's changed everything like she's <laughs> been the driving force behind so much of this and getting awards for her great work when um and i know journalists don't have to be experts always in what they're reporting on, but if they're reporting the facts and she's not, she takes an opinion and pushes that. So that's how I feel it. I don't feel like it is journalism. It's to me, that's not journalism. Objectivity presented in a very objective way. Just because you don't use personal pronouns does not mean you're being objective in your reporting. I listened to her original uh, podcast APM years ago. And of course, I immediately got on American public media and I said, you, you got this wrong. And how much time do you think I was given? They said, oh no, she asked some people, it was balanced and it's not. <laughs> and I, like you, I, I refuse to put myself through listening to her. 
Now, she is invited to speak at the Illinois Reading Council uh, conference, and I'm, I'm presenting there as well. And it's like asking a faith healer to present at a medical convention. Yes. Yes. Why, I, in heaven's name, would you ask a charlatan to speak and give her that platform? When you know that she has a personal monetary interest in making a big name for herself, and she found this this movement that she could attach herself to and make that name for herself. And now she's famous. So I feel like she accomplished what she was really out to accomplish um, as opposed to being out to help the field of literacy grow and help more children. I don't see it that way. I hope 10 years from now, they'll look back and call this the Hanford era because I want her to take ownership for what she is doing to literacy. Take ownership for how literacy is going to go downhill. It already is. Take ownership for how many good teachers leave the classroom because of the external mandates. Take ownership of that, Emily. Yeah. In Ohio, for example, I know North Carolina mandated letters training. Yes. Talk about making billions of dollars. Yes. You know, Louisa Motes. But um, in Ohio, they didn't mandate letters training, but they mandated training in science of reading for all teachers. So, for example, my district um, that I used to teach for, for, you know, 25 years has mandated all their teachers to take letters training. And on their own time. It's very intense. I mean, it's long. It's hours and hours and hours. And on their own time, they're not provided time during the day. They have to take letters training. And I know that's happening all over the country. So, you know, they talk about Lucy Calkins making money. Good grief. Who's making money now? Good grief. Well, Louisa Motes, who I think is a charlatan as well, and the reason is I, I read her white paper on her on the website and Lexia Learning and Cambium are there to make lots and lots of money. But she the the way she misuses research, misinterprets research, I don't know which is more frightening, that she doesn't know the difference or that she knows the difference and does it anyway. She makes statements such as saying teachers don't know how to teach reading. And she cites a research study that really essentially she gave a poll on what she thought should be teachers should know. And based on that survey, then she made the conclusion that all teachers don't know how to teach reading. That's the type of, of research in quotations that she uses to make her case. And people just see the sites and they go, oh, research. Well, Louisa Motes must know what she's talking about. When she either doesn't, and that's a scary proposition, or she does and she's making it up anyway. That's, and I think there's people, I think both of that, those things are true with the people in this movement. I've interacted with people that I know believe this, like they just misunderstand. And then I know there are people that I know understand and misrepresent it. So I think both things are going on. It's scary. It is scary. It's very scary. People who should know better and do this anyway. And do this anyway. Well, and then 
from that, from that research that teachers don't know how, I personally have interacted online on Twitter with people who are so condescending to me. Yes. And it's in this very kind way, like, you know what? It's not your fault that you don't know how to teach children to read. You were never taught the right things. And, you know, no one in college ever taught you and you're ignorant that you can't help it. And we're here to help you now. We're here to help you now. Um, which I find so insulting to say, like, and people say it who have never taught anybody to read. Well, let's just pick up on that point. People sometimes get down on me because I use funny voices and I'm sometimes a little attacking in my podcast. But for God's sakes, what have they been doing for the last 20 years? You know, how we try to use research and reason and they do what you just said. So somebody has to go out there and be the 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 mean crabby person. Well, I feel like um there's probably a lot of us who are not buying into the movement. Yep. But don't have a big voice. Yep. And teachers who feel like they can't have a big voice, you know, in my district where I taught, you can't really have a big voice because this is what's happening and it's not even just the district, it's the state. So they feel like they'll be in trouble if they do anything different or speak out. But I feel like there's a lot of us yes. who feel this way. Yes. And it, it's common sense, really, but based on science. Um, and I feel like if we more of us come together and speak up and educate people, it's not about spouting opinions. It's about educating people. Um, I feel like we could come to a a reasonable place and help more children. Instead that's of why we have the International Literacy Educators mm -hmm. Coalition. It's a group of educators from around the world that are feeling frustrated and recognize that teachers are afraid to speak out because they can't. Yes. And I would be the same way if I had a family to feed. Yes. Yes. Shut up and do what I'm told. Yes. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned the um, international part of that. Because for years now, like I hang out on Twitter just because that's where I was able to connect with a lot of different educators that I couldn't geographically, you know, hang out with. Yep. And I've learned so much yes. from these, these networks that I've formed on Twitter. But one of the networks is with um, teachers from Australia yes. and UK yep. who are going through the same thing. And in UK, they're farther along than we are. Like they've already had the mandated programs there, you know, that's already happened. And just on a personal level, talking to these teachers and just the craziness, you know, inspectors come to see what page on the phonics book they're on. It's just nuts and it hasn't worked. That's what the latest research showed out of UK. It didn't work and they've done it for maybe a decade now. Um, I think, why can't we learn? I mean, we already did reading first and we didn't learn from that. And now UK's just done it. And apparently we're not learning from that. So I'm glad you mentioned the international part of it because it's not just a US problem. And I'm Canada too. I feel like I've made friends all over the world, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, UK. And it is refreshing. I'm not crazy. Other people think this way too. Yes. Well, I've already made my podcast for 10 years from now. And, it, and the, the title of that is, I told you so. 
I love it. I love it. Oh, that would actually be a fun podcast to do. It really would. And you know, when I came to Miami University, I got my undergrad here, but I also got my master's degree here and I had to write a thesis. This was back in the early nineties. And I chose to write on the history of reading instruction in the U.S. And um, I thought at the time, this is so crazy how we do this. It's so nuts. Um, I'm glad I'm not going to have to live through that. That's I really thought that. I'm glad, you know, we've learned from this. We've learned from history. I won't have to live through this. And then my whole career, now I look back and I think, ah, my whole career witnessed it continuing. It was back to the basics in the 80s. And it was reading first in the early 2000s in the aughts. And now it's come back <clears throat> with more of a vengeance with the science of reading. More of a vengeance is right, like more of a vengeance. Because yeah. the for-profits are behind it, push it. And how, are you, how do you argue when you have a, a million dollar voice and I'm just a little bald guy with a small little podcast? Yes, yes. And you know now we have legislation in many states that you know is cementing it. It cements this until we get new legislators who, you know, don't do this. But um, I'm mentioning this not because I wrote a book, but just to say. So a few years back, um, a co-author, a teacher from the district where I worked, um, and I wrote a book about teaching emergent readers in small groups, and it was really the purpose was to to say, you know what, it's important what books you put in front and they shouldn't be patterned. And here's how you can help emergent readers use text. But it's illegal now in my state, my book, like nobody in my state would be able to buy my book because I talk about meaning structure and visual. We talk about leveled books, like everything we talk about is illegal now and that children should be thinking about meaning from the earliest stages. So even that, (laughs) like even books now are, against the law, which just blows my mind. Right. I never thought we would be at this place. Never, ever in this country, I thought we would be at this top-down authoritative place where small groups are dictating to the masses. If you want to end with, let's end with one big idea. One big idea, Susan, that you'd like the world to know One big idea is, and this is what I would say like to my pre-service teachers, please read all the research and please look carefully at the history and what certain approaches did. Like there's research that shows the results of different approaches. Please read all of it and be knowledgeable about all of it so that we can move forward in a smarter way than we've done in the past. That would be what I would say. Excellent. That is a good last word, as Lawrence O'Donnell would say. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Susan, for being a wonderful guest. I enjoyed chatting with you, as always. I always learn from you. So thank you for your work. Much appreciated. All right.